Peace be upon you. So a lot of people are unaware of just how much influence uh, other religions have had on the current interpretations around Islam, uh, specifically in the context of uh, Christian polemics, where these attacks against the religion, against the prophet, uh, caused the Muslims of the time to create these narrations to kind of strengthen their prophet, their case. And one of the things that was under attack was the fact that the prophet did not have a physical miracle like the uh, prophets in the past. And this is uh, specified in the Quran in Surah 10 verse 20. It says, they say, how come no miracle has come down to him from his Lord? Say, the future belongs to God, so wait and I'm waiting along with you. And another verse is in Surah 17 verse 59. It says, what stopped us from sending the miracles is that the previous generations have rejected them. For example, we showed Thamud the camel a profound miracle, but they transgressed against it. We sent the miracles only to instill reverence. So here in this verse, it's specifying that these kinds of miracles of the past, uh, these supernatural miracles, have stopped from coming. That the uh, what we have now are these arguments, uh, facts, logic. That's the arguments that God is providing us. And in Surah 29, verse 50 and 51, it says, they said, if only miracles could come down to him from his Lord, say, all miracles come only from God. I am no more than a manifest warner. And it continues, is it not enough of a miracle that we sent down to you this book being recited to them? This indeed a mercy and a reminder for people who believe. So the only thing that the prophet received was this physical book. This was his miracle. And it's the arguments, the logic, the mathematical composition, the findings within this book is what signifies its miracle. And I can imagine that, you know, a lot of the early Muslims, they were getting pushback from Christians uh, predominantly saying, you know, your prophet didn't provide any miracles. So they created these, you know, fabricated these stories, mimicking kind of uh, Christian theology uh, around the supposed miracles of the prophet. Like we looked at this in previous episodes, they say in the Quran that the prophet, they were demanding a spring, uh, you know, from him. And he was saying that he's incapable, that he only has what God has given him. Yet if you look at the Hadith, there is, you know, narrations about a uh, spring gushing from his fingers uh, that, you know, could have given abolition and quenched the thirst of a hundred thousand people. And him, you know, taking a little bit of food and feeding hundreds and thousands of people. And you see that these parallel kind of the stories that are around regarding Jesus, that the Muslims wanted to have something similar for their prophet to say, look, whatever Jesus did, our prophet did better. And one of these false narrations that they attribute to the prophet is this claim that he was illiterate, that the, this is the miracle of the Quran, that this guy couldn't read or write, yet he had this book. And that's a very popular claim. You know, you ask anyone, they all believe that the prophet was illiterate, that he was incapable of reading and writing. And this is really an insult to the prophet to think that for 23 years, he was incapable of reading or writing. If you study the history, it says that he would give, you know, people their freedom. If he would teach uh, the people how to read and write, that this was of utmost importance for him, that he opened up schools so people can learn to read and write. Yet he himself never Learn to read or write? It's absurd. It's, it's, it's laughable. And the reason is, is because there is no foundation for this claim. This is a later stage fabrication attributing that the prophet could not read or write. So God willing, in this episode, we're going to look at the narrations saying that he's illiterate and also the arguments that are made from the Quran to try to justify this claim and inshallah dismantle this whole false narrative. 
So if you read the Hadith corpus, you'll see Hadith like the, the following. So this is a Bukhari 1913. This is narrated by Ibn Umar. The Prophet said, we are an illiterate nation. We neither write nor know accounts. The month is like this and this. For example, sometimes of 29 days and sometimes of 30 days. So this Hadith is claiming that the uh, Prophet, his companions, they're all a bunch of illiterates. And uh, the word that they're using, it's the same one that's using the Quran, is they use this word ummi. That they say that, okay, you know, we are an illiterate nation and we neither write nor know accounts. Now what's peculiar is the Quran specifically specifies commandments to the Prophet, the believers, to write down financial transactions, to write down contracts. So why would God give this commandment to a people if they're a bunch of illiterates, that they were incapable of not only reading and writing, but to taking account that this was the longest verse of the entire Quran, Surah 2 verse 282, it specifically commands to write down financial transactions. Now, these are relatively weak, you know, kind of arguments. The, the strongest argument that you typically hear from traditionalists to why the prophet was illiterate, uh, it comes from the supposed narration around what happened when the prophet received the first revelation and this is surah 96 and this is what you see in the uh, third hadith from the uh, compilation from bukhari now i don't want to read the the whole thing i just want to emphasize the, the 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 part that they extrapolate the fact that the prophet you know supposedly couldn't read from this narration so it says that the angel came to him and asked him to read the prophet replied i do not know how to read the prophet added the angel caught me forcefully impressed me so hard that I could not bear it anymore. He then released me and again asked me to read, and I replied, I do not know how to read. Thereupon, he caught me again and pressed me a second time till I could not bear it anymore. He then released me and again asked me to read, but again I replied, I do not know how to read. Thereupon, he caught me for the third time and pressed me and then released me and said, then the angel Gabriel uh, reads the first three verses of Surah uh, 96. Now, what's interesting about this is the translation says, uh, I do not know how to read. And this is just fundamentally, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lie. If we read the actual Arabic, it doesn't say, I don't know how to read. It says, I am not a reciter. Now, this does, it doesn't say, I'm, you know, I'm uh, illiterate. That's like a weird response to give, I'm not a reciter. If someone asks you, say, hey, uh, sing, and your response is, uh, I'm not a singer, that's different than saying, I don't know how to sing, right? So he never says that he's incapable of reading. This is a distortion in the translation. So we start sensing some funny business around here. Now, what's interesting is we have this narration in other books. So for instance, the most famous biographer of the prophet was Ibn Asaq. Uh, he lived about a hundred years before Bukhari. In his work, he, he transmits this hadith, and it's also transmitted by uh, Tabari, but there's a major difference in their transmission of this hadith. So I'm going to read their transmission of this hadith. Uh, it says that Gabriel brought him the command of God. He came to me, said the apostle of God, while I was asleep with a coverlet of brocade whereupon was some writing and said, read. I said, what shall I read? He pressed me with it so tightly that I thought it was death. Then he let me go and said, read. I said, what shall I read? He pressed me with it again so that I thought it was death. Then he let me go and said, read. I said, what shall I read? 
He pressed me with it the third time, so that I thought it was death, and said, Read. I said, What then shall I read? And this I said only to deliver myself from him. Lest he should do the same to me again, he said, Read in the name of thy Lord who created, who created man of blood coagulated. Read thy Lord is the most beneficent, who taught by the pen, taught that which they knew not unto men. So I read it, and he departed from me, and I awoke from my sleep, and it was as though these words were written on my heart. So in this account, it's very clear that he did not say that he's not even a reader, right? He said, what shall I read? So not only does it claim that, uh, you know, the prophet said, what shall I read? You know, what then shall I read? It ends the narration by saying, so I read it. So never in this narration does he say he's incapable of reading. The question is simply, what shall I read? So in the narration from Bukhari, that you, it says, you know, uh, I am not a reader, similar to someone saying, look, I'm not a singer. It doesn't mean that they're incapable of it. It just means that that's not what they do. And then in this one, it says, what shall I read? And then it continues the fact that they fulfilled it. Now, what else is interesting is if you read all of Ibn Asaf, his uh, uh, history of the prophet, right? This is supposed to be the oldest, uh, most kind of complete history of the prophet's life. What's fascinating is not once does he mention that the prophet is illiterate. Now, if this was true, you would think that this would be front and center, that he would make at least a mention of the prophet being incapable of reading or writing. Yet it's not mentioned one time. And what's interesting is we actually have three times in Ibn Asaq that I found where it states that the prophet himself wrote. The first one is regarding the constitution of Medina, where it says that the prophet wrote the document for the constitution of Medina. The second one is a private letter that the prophet gave to one of the companions uh, in preparation for the battle of Badr, that he's told, do not open this letter until the set time. And the third one is a letter that he apparently penned himself to the kings of Hemyar. So this is enough evidence to show that, again, there's some real funny business going around creating this narrative that the prophet couldn't read or write. So historically, we know that at the uh, time of the prophet, they didn't have numerals like they do today with a base 10 system, uh, these Arabic numerals. Instead, they had something known as the abjad system. This is like Roman numerals where each of the letters in the Arabic alphabet represent a number. And historically, we understood that the prophet was a merchant. Therefore, he should know at a minimum to be able to recognize the letters. So this is one historical uh, data point. Now, in a uh, previous episode, we dismantled this false narration that the uh, Quran was originally just an audio recitation that, no, ever since the revelation of the Quran, it was always meant to be a written scripture. I mean, contemplate that the most uh, used name for the Quran inside the Quran is Kitab. And Kitab means book. Now, what's funny is uh, modern Muslims are trying to reinterpret the word Kitab to say that Kitab does not mean a written scripture. Uh, and broad in its sense because they realize this contradiction that's formed. So let's look at some of these uh, verses that, again, confirm that the prophet could read and write. You know, as we saw what's claimed to be the uh, first revelation given to the prophet, the word is read. Read in the name of your Lord who created. He created man from an embryo. Read and your Lord most exalted teaches by means of the pen. 
he teaches man what he never knew. So here twice in the uh, uh, verses, it specifically says to read. And then it says that God teaches by means of the pen. And this indicates that the revelation came by means of the physical pen. And we see this because what's attributed is the uh, second revelation in source 68, noon, the pen and what they, the people, write. Showing that the function of the pen is not metaphorical. It, it's meant to write. Now, some argue, they say that the word ikra, it just means recite. It doesn't mean to read. But we can do an analysis of the Quran and see, does is this true? Does ikra, could it just mean recite? Now, the Quran uses three distinct words that can be translated as a read. Uh, and they, from surface level, they might seem synonymous, but if God uses different words, there must be a meaning behind it. So the first word is ratil. Ratil is only used four times in the entire Quran. And it means to read with deliberation and to read in entirety. Um, the second one that's more broadly used is utulu. Utulu means to, to recite. It, it's more general. And it's used uh, 63 times in the Quran. And it has another meaning, which means to follow. Now, what's fascinating is when we look at every single occurrence of utulu in the context of a reciting, it's always in reference to uh, uh, a teaching or an understanding or something to be followed. And this is actually the second meaning of this root. Uh, it means to follow. And we'll see this in Surah 91 verse 2. It says the moon that follows it. And it uses the same root. So utulu is something where someone recites something and the intention of the audience is to follow it. So for instance, in the Quran, we'll see that it's used consistently. So we're talking about uh, about 60 times where it's uh, reciting God's verses, ayat, uh, God's book, kitab, God's reminder, dhikr. So in uh, Surah 3 verse 58, it reads, these are the ayat that we recite to you, providing a message full of wisdom. In Surah 3 verse 108, it reads, these are God's ayat, we recite them to you truthfully. God does not wish any hardship for the people. And the only time that you'll see this used in the context of other than God's revelations in uh, conjunction with uh, 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 to recite is in Surah 2 verse 102, where it says, they pursued what the devils recited concerning Solomon's kingdom. Again, the function of their recitation was that the people who were pursuing it wanted to follow that information. So we see that consistently, utulu, it means to recite something with the intention of it being followed. Now, ikra, which is used in Surah uh, 96, this root occurs 88 times in the Quran. Uh, 74 times is in reference to the Quran because it's also the root of the word Quran. And the word ikra, specifically that word, only occurs four times in the Quran. So twice is in Surah 96, which we saw read in the name of your Lord who created. He created man from an embryo. Read and your Lord most exalted teaches by means of the pen. The other occurrences of Ikra, it's always in conjunction with something physically written. So for instance, in Surah 17, verse 13 and 14, we read, we have recorded the fate of every human being. It is tied to his neck. On the day of resurrection, we will hand him a record that is accessible. Read your own record. Today you suffice as your own reckoner. So again, it's talking about a physical book that people can read, Ikra. Uh, the other occurrence is in Surah 69, verse uh, 19. It says, as for the one who receives his record, again, a physical book, with his right hand, he will say, come read my record. So we shouldn't take it lightly that consistently in the Quran, when the word Ikra is used, it's in conjunction with something that's physically written. 
And that's the distinguishing factor between the use of these three words. Ratil is something that has to be read in its entirety, deliberately, in a specific sequence. Utulu is typically something that's recited for the sake of being followed. And Ikra is something that's read from a physical written book. And this uh, makes sense to why God says he teaches by means of the pen. This is the way that the revelation comes down. It's by means of the pen that he teaches man what we never knew. And all this points to the fact that there was a written Quran that the prophet had that he's reading from. So, for instance, in Surah 33, verse 6, says the prophet is closer to the believers than they are to each other, and his wives are like mothers to them. The relatives ought to take care of one another in accordance with God's scripture. Thus, the believers shall take care of their relatives who immigrate to them, provided they have taken care of their own families first. And then here it says, these are commandments of this written scripture. So the prophet is not just reciting from his memory. He's reciting from something that's written. And we see this confirmed in the Quran. In Surah 25, verse 5, the enemies of the prophet make the following claim. They also said, tales from the past that he wrote down. They were dictated to him day and night. So this shows that the prophet wrote it with his own hand. That this was not something that he dictated to someone else and they wrote down. And this also corresponds with the fact when they demanded a miracle from the prophet. I mean, if the guy was illiterate, that would have been the miracle. They said, hey, how come no miracle came down to him? And says, hey, guys, I'm actually illiterate. Isn't that amazing that I'm able to produce this scripture? Now, the verse that the traditionalists love to cite to try to claim that the prophet was incapable of reading or writing is in Surah 29, verse 48. And I'm going to show how this actually backfires. It says, you did not read the previous scriptures nor did you write them with your right hand. In that case, the rejectors would have had reason to harbor doubts. And they want to say that this uh, verse indicates that the prophet was incapable of reading or writing. But let's take a closer look. Firstly, this is only in reference to the previous scriptures, where it says you did not read the previous scriptures, nor did you write them with your right hand. It's not talking about just any book of literature. It's specifically in the context of scripture. Now, what else is interesting? It uses the word talu. And we know for a fact from the verses of the Quran that the prophet was reciting the ayat from God. So to say that he was incapable of reciting ayat before it would form a contradiction unless someone claims that he was illiterate and then when he got the revelations, he was no longer illiterate. That's the only way you can get around this. Because if you want to say that he was incapable of reading because of this verse, then it means that he never recited any ayat. But we see that, no, he did recite ayat, he recited kitab. In Surah 29, verse 45, it reads, You shall recite what is revealed to you of the scripture. And the word here is atalu. And this is talking to the prophet because it uses the singular you. So this shows that, again, the prophet was able to recite. And this is only three verses before 2948, where it says, You do not read the previous scriptures, nor did you write them. So that would create a contradiction in understanding if we're saying that the prophet was incapable of reading because the same word is used in this verse as it is in 2945 where the prophet is commanded to atalu to recite al-kitab, the scripture. Also, for example, in Surah 98 verse 2, it says that a messenger from God is reciting yattalu, 
to them, suhuf, which it means physical pages, purified. So it's showing that the messenger is reciting from physical pages. So this completely destroys, and there's so many verses that show that, no, the prophet did, uh, that he did recite God's scripture, God's book. This is his function. So if someone's going to claim that 2948 means that he was incapable, again, that creates a contradiction. And what this verse means is that the prophet did not know, he did not recite, he did not read, and he did not write the previous scriptures. It's purely about the previous scriptures. That's what it's saying. It has nothing to do with him being incapable of reading or writing. Also consider that the verse is stating, in that case, the rejecters would have had reason to harbor doubts. Now let's just think about this logically. Irrespective if the prophet wrote it with his hand or not, is that going to cause doubt in the hearts of the rejecters? No, it doesn't make a difference. What causes doubts to the hearts of the rejecters is if the prophet had familiarity with the previous scriptures. That's the reason that it's specifically saying that in the context of the previous scriptures, the prophet did not read them, nor did he write them. Now, further proof of this, it says, nor did you write them with your right hand. And we have to ask, why is there emphasis, this emphasis towards the right hand? If we go to source 69, verse 44 through 47, we read, had he uttered any other teachings, we would have seized him by the right hand. We would have severed him by the aorta or understood to mean to stop the revelations to him. None of you could have helped him. What is the connection with the prophet uttering other than what he was commanded and being seized by the right hand other than the fact that the revelation was given by him writing it down with his hand? The emphasis of saying that the prophet would have been seized by the right hand is to give us assurances that God's verses were not altered by the messenger when he was writing them down. God is telling us that if Muhammad was to write any other teachings, he would have grabbed him by the right hand, refraining him from being able to continue with his mission. In chapter 17, verse 73 through 75, God gives us further assurances that the Quran we have that Muhammad wrote with his own hand was exactly as intended by God without alteration by any intermediary. It reads, They almost diverted you from the revelations we have given you. They wanted you to fabricate something else in order to consider you a friend. If we're not that we strengthened you, you almost leaned towards them just a little bit. Had you done that, we would have doubled the retribution for you in this life and after death, and you would have found no one to help you against us. So this takes us to the last uh, argument to show that the prophet was capable of reading and writing, that this false narration calling the prophet incapable of being able to read or write, that he was somehow deficient mentally from being able to learn this skill despite the fact that this is the commandment given to him to read the Quran. Despite the fact that he was apparently, according to history, such an adamant, staunch uh, advocate for people to be able to read or write, it's something that he himself never acted upon because he was incapable of it. I mean, we see the degree of insult that they're willing to throw the prophet under the bus in order to try to strengthen their case to make it seem more miraculous. The whole point of this is that they're dissatisfied with the Quran. It's not enough for them. 
they have to create these false narrations to try to bolster the credibility of the prophet. Now, this is an insecurity on their part. So let's dismantle this last argument. And it has to do with the distortion of one of the meanings of a word in the Quran, which is ummi. Today, individuals think that this word ummi means someone who's illiterate. But classically, and as used in the Quran, this word specifically means someone who's a Gentile, who is not of the people of the scripture. And this is what the Arabs as a whole were. They were Gentiles. You know, they weren't just illiterates. They weren't people who were living in the backwaters of Arabia. No, they had a rich history. But what they were lacking was they didn't have scriptures from God until God sent his final prophet to the Arabs. Now, this word ummi occurs six times in the Quran. And we are going to look at every single occurrence of this uh, word in the Quran. And we're going to apply the two meanings, either illiterate or Gentile. And let's see what this word really means. We see in the Quran that the primary function of the Quran is to settle disputes. In Surah 16, verse 64, it reads, We have revealed this scripture to you to point out for them what they dispute and to provide guidance and mercy for people who believe. The Quran also tells us that it has examples for everything. In Surah 18, verse 54, it reads, We have cited in this Quran every kind of example, but the human being is the most argumentative creature. In Surah 39, verse 27, it reads, We have cited for the people every kind of example in this Quran, that they may take heed. And God also calls the Quran the best tafsir. In Surah 25, verse 33, it says, Whatever argument they come up with, we provide you with the truth and a better understanding. Asana tafsiran. So by analyzing these six instances of the word ummi, we can apply each of the two meanings, Gentile or illiterate, and see which definition can be consistently applied as the Quran has no contradictions. In Surah 4, verse 82, it says, Why do they not study the Quran carefully? If it were from other than God, they would have found in it numerous contradictions. Now, as we go through these six examples, I want to let you know the last example, it pretty much solidifies the entire argument, but I'm going to save that for the last. Let's start with the uh, two occurrences that are the most frequently cited. And these are in back-to-back -back verses in Surah 7, verse 157 and 158. And for context, we're going to start with 156. So starting from Surah 7, verse 156, it reads, And decree for us righteousness in this world and in the hereafter. We have repented to you. He said, My retribution befalls whomever I will, but my mercy encompasses all things. However, I will specify it for those who, one, lead a righteous life, two, give the obligatory charities a caught, and three, believe in our revelations, and fourth, follow the messenger, the Ummi prophet, whom they find written in their Torah and Gospel. He exhorts them to be righteous, enjoins them from evil, allows for them all good food, and prohibits that which is bad, and unloads the burdens and shackles that have been imposed upon them. Those who believe in him, respect him, support him, and follow the light that came with him are the successful ones. Say, O people, I am God's messenger to all of you. To him belongs the sovereignty of the heavens and the earth. There is no God except he. He controls life and death. Therefore, you shall believe in God and his messenger, the Ummi prophet, who believes in God and his words. Follow him that you may be guided. 
So twice in these verses, it mentions the Ummi prophet, and I intentionally didn't translate it. Let's first try to apply the word illiterate. The verse states that this illiterate prophet, this Ummi prophet, is mentioned in the previous scriptures. Now, do we have any prophecy of an illiterate prophet in the Jewish scripture that's supposed to come? The reality is it doesn't exist. There is no prophecy of an illiterate prophet to be delivered to the illiterate people. But what we do find in the Old Testament is the Gentile prophet. And you'll find two occurrences that I found from Isaiah regarding the Gentile prophet. It reads in Isaiah 42, it says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the Gentiles. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. And what's interesting about this, if we take this, says he will not shout or cry out, is that we know one of the uh, criticisms about the prophet was that he was soft-spoken. In Surah 9, verse 61, it says, Some of them hurt the prophet by saying, He is all ears. Say, it is better for you that he listens to you. He believes in God and trusts the believers. He is a mercy for those among you who believe. Those who hurt God's messenger have incurred a painful retribution. So here the people are saying that the prophet is all ears. Right? And we know that he did not like to engage in lengthy conversation. So the fact that it's saying he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets is actually indicative of the actions that we see in the Quran regarding the prophet. And it continues, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This is a direct parallel to what we read in the verses regarding 7157 and 7158 regarding this Gentile prophet, the Ummi prophet, that he unloads the burdens and shackles imposed upon them. Those who believe in him, respect him, support him, and follow the light that came with him are the successful ones. Is that not what we just read in Isaiah 42? I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people. This is a covenant that the children of Israel made in these verses. And a light for the Gentiles. That's who the Arabs are. They're Gentiles. They're people who did not have a scripture to open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. As if that's not enough of a confirmation that this should be understood as the Gentile prophet, not the illiterate prophet. There's another passage in Isaiah 49, and it echoes the same message of one who is sent to the people, the Ummah, as a fulfillment of God's covenant to the children of Israel, who will be light for the Gentiles. So it reads in Isaiah 49, 
And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who has despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. So keep in mind that it says, and abhorred by the nation, right? To the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. This is what the prophet did. This is what his delivery of the Quran fulfilled, that this is a covenant for the children of Israel, that God raised a Gentile prophet that is going to redeem them, is going to remove these shackles that were imposed upon them for them to be able to return back to God's favor because this is what the Quran calls the children of Israel from. In Surah 2 verse 40 it reads, O children of Israel, remember my favor which I bestowed upon you and fulfill your part of the covenant that I fulfill my part of the covenant and reverence me. You shall believe in what I have revealed herein confirming what you have. Do not be the first to reject it. Do not trade away my revelations for a cheap price and observe me. Do not confound the truth with falsehood, nor shall you conceal the truth knowingly. You shall observe the contact per salat, give the obligatory charity zakat, and bow down with those who bow down. Do you exhort the people to be righteous while forgetting yourselves? Though you read the scripture, do you not understand? You shall seek help through steadfastness and the contact per salat. This is difficult indeed, but not so for the reverent, who believe that they will meet their Lord, that to him they ultimately return. O children of Israel, remember my favor which I bestowed upon you, that he blessed you more than any other people. So from these two occurrences, we can see that while either definition could theoretically work when applied to the verses, the usage of Gentile has a much more applicable understanding that corresponds with the covenant that we see mentioned in the Quran that we should find in the previous scripture. This is because the previous scripture emphasizes the coming of the Gentile prophet. But what we don't have is any indication of an illiterate prophet. This concept does not exist, and therefore, this is not the correct understanding of this word. Now let's go to the third occurrence of the word Ummi. This is in Surah 62, verse 2. It says, he is the one who sent to the Ummi a messenger from among them to recite to them his revelations, purify them, and teach them the scripture and wisdom. Before this, they had gone far astray. So now, let's apply each of these two meanings. Let's try illiterate and let's try Gentile and see which one is more applicable, which one does not create a contradiction. Let's first use the word uh, illiterate. 
It says he is the one who sent to the illiterates a messenger from among them. Now, if we are to assume that this is the proper understanding of this verse, we have to extrapolate that every single Arab, every single uh, companion of the prophet were all a bunch of illiterates, that they were incapable of reading or writing. And we know that that's not the case. As stated previously, there's commandments in the Quran to write a will or to write down financial transactions that the longest verse of the Quran is telling the believers that when they're uh, fulfilling a, a loan, a transaction, to write it down and to not tire of writing the details no matter how long. So God willing, let's look at the fourth occurrence of the word Ummi. This occurs in Surah 3, verse 75. And again, we're getting to the point where it becomes obvious what this word means. It reads, some followers of the scripture can be trusted with a whole lot, and they will give it back to you. Others among them cannot be trusted with a single dinar. They will not repay you unless you keep after them. That is because they say we do not have to be honest when dealing with the ummi. Thus, they attribute lies to God knowingly. Since this is based on the rules of the followers of the previous scripture, we can investigate if there is any precedence of them claiming they do not have to deal fairly when dealing with the illiterates or the Gentiles. As expected, if we look at Jewish jurisprudence, we see there is no rules stating that Jews were allowed to deal unfairly with illiterate people. Yet, we do see guidelines that Jews have different laws for how they are allowed to deal with Gentiles compared to people of the book. So for instance, while they were not allowed to charge usury to other people of the book, they were allowed to charge usury to the Gentiles. Again, this shows that the word ummi used in the Quran should be understood as Gentile and not illiterate because we have no precedent that they say we do not have to be honest when dealing with the illiterates. But we do have precedent of them saying we do not have to be honest dealing justly with the Gentiles. So in this fourth occurrence, again, the word Gentile fits in better and does not create this awkward contradiction. And now let's look at the fifth occurrence. This is Surah 2, verse 78. It says, Among them are Ummis who do not know the scripture except through hearsay, then assume that they know it. So we can try each of the different understandings. We can say that some of them are illiterates who do not know the scripture except through hearsay. Or we can say that among them are Gentiles who do not know the scripture. And if we look at this verse in isolation, it would be hard to determine which one is the correct uh, use. But if we just read the immediate next verse in Surah 2 verse 79, we can determine definitively that this is only makes sense with the word Gentile. Because it says, therefore, woe to those who distort the scripture with their own hands. Then say, this is what God has revealed, seeking a cheap material gain. Woe to them for what their hands wrote. And woe to them for their illicit gains. So this verbatim tells us that the ummi is a Gentile. Because it wouldn't make sense if you're saying it's illiterate and then they're distorting the scripture, the kitab, with their own hands. And it says, woe to them for what their hands have wrote. So there's no doubt that the word ummi in this use is Gentile and not illiterate. And this takes us to the last occurrence of the word ummi, 
which gives us the actual definition of the word. So one of the methods that the Quran utilizes to clarify the meaning of words is uh, by means of providing contrasting examples such that one can understand the meaning by understanding its opposite. And this is exactly what we find in this occurrence. This last occurrence is in Surah 3 verse 20. It reads, If they argue with you, then say, I have simply submitted myself to God, I and those who follow me. You shall proclaim to those who receive the scripture as well as the ummi. Would you submit? If they submit, then they have been guided. But if they turn away, your sole mission is to deliver this message. God is seer of all the people. This verse explicitly states that the opposite of those who receive the scripture are the Gentiles, the Ummi. It is not the illiterates. This message is not for those who receive the scripture and the illiterates, right? This message is a message for the whole world as specified 68 verse 52. So to say that this is only a message that is for those who receive the scripture as well as the illiterates is nonsensical. This verse is the final nail in the coffin to show that the word Ummi, as used in the Quran, does not mean illiterate, that it means a Gentile. We've looked at every single occurrence and we confirm this. So the only thing that they have left, again, are their false, mistranslated Hadith narrations. And we, we saw that we can use the Quran as a final arbitrator for our disputes. This is what the function of the Quran is. And that God has permitted the enemies of every prophet, human and jinn devils, to inspire in each other fancy words in order to deceive. And this is in Surah 6, verse 112 through 116. It reads, We have permitted the enemies of every prophet, human, and jinn devils to inspire in each other fancy words in order to deceive. Had your Lord willed, they would not have done it. You shall disregard them and their fabrications. This is to let the minds of those who do not believe in the hereafter listen to such fabrications and accept them and thus expose their real convictions. These convictions is that they're dissatisfied with the Quran. They're dissatisfied with their messenger. They want to attribute additional significance to him, additional miracles to bolster his status because they're dissatisfied with what God has delivered to them. It continues in Surah 6 verse 114, says, Shall I seek other than God as an arbitrator when he has revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate his words. He is the hearer, the omniscient. And then it tells us, if you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. God tells us in the Quran, this is the ultimate source. God warns us that the human and jinn devils, they're going to try to inspire each other fancy words in order to deceive. By God's leave, we have his perfect scripture. It has everything we need for our salvation. And we should not be duped by these lies that they attribute the, to the prophet that insult him to claim that he was incapable of learning how to read and write in order to give credibility to their false narrations. And this is what the enemies of the prophet do. They fabricate lies against the prophet. And they're the most heinous and despicable of people. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in contact, you can join us on our Discord server. Uh, we got a thriving community. 
Tons of discussions. It's great to have like-minded people uh, who are interested in God's message. Join us there. Uh, if you want to follow the verses of the Quran, you can download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranStudyApp.com website. And if you want to have notes from today's discussion, you can go to Quran Talk blog, where you can find notes from today's discussion as far as articles on all sorts of topics. And if you want more up-to-date updates, please follow me on Twitter at TalkQuran. Until next time, peace and God bless.